people are moving for many different reasons. Fundamentally, it's insecurity when they are subjected to armed conflict. Sometimes they are forced uh, movements, they are forced out of a place into another place. There's a lot of internally displaced people that are escaping conflict inside the countries, but there are many more that are refugees outside. And what we know now is that the causes, the root causes for that displacement could be attributed to armed conflict and violence, indeed, but a large part of it has to do with poverty. And we are seeing since COVID-19 a massive, massive poverty drive in the most uh, poor communities, they are doubly poor if you wish. This has become a pull factor where many communities we were working with to keep their children, boys and girls at home educated, don't have the means to keep them anymore. So the boys will leave and voluntarily seek recruitment with an armed group because they cannot feed themselves, the family cannot do it anymore. And the girls will go through early marriage uh, just to not get rid of the girl but to assist the family. So we're noticing that big time. Okay. And your report also shows that attacks against schools are on the rise. There were more than 1,000 cases reported in 2022. So what is required to improve the accountability and responsabilization for those kind of violations? The world is at war today, the whole world. I have never seen a moment in the last, and I'm old, I'm almost 70 years old, so I'm old. I have never seen a moment in history where the general mentality of the international community is more on a war footing than on a peaceful a resolution of conflict footing. And we're seeing this in a massive amount of violent uh, resolution of conflict. We're seeing a lot of coup in, in Africa, particularly very violent coup d'etat. We're seeing rebellions where armies fight each other for possession and control. We're seeing more and more international and national actors engaging in international conflict and in national conflict. So here we have two problems. You said that there was a rise on education last year in our reports, but I can tell you now that that rise is very worrisome not because it's a rise in attacks on schools, it's because almost 50% of those attacks are done by government forces. It's the first time in our docket. Usually in our docket we have an 80-20% ratio with 80% of violations against schools are done by armed groups and 20% by government forces. Last year it's almost the opposite, it's almost 50% already, which means that governments are not are using the military instrument without due regard to international humanitarian law uh, with sufficient distinction on the targeting that they do and proportionality in the use of resources regarding the, the populations that they are hitting. The other big problem that we're seeing is that there are some armed groups, particularly violent, many of which are identified as terrorists by the United Nations, who target schools in order to destroy the possibility of education because what they're trying to do is to recruit ignorant people. And they particularly focus girls' education. So we're seeing a massive attack on girls' schools. The chance of girls going to school um, is being, uh, particularly in the Sahel, is, 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 is huge.
is, is huge. So for us, it's very simple. If you're going to resolve your conflicts militarily, whatever and whoever you are, if you're going to pick up arms, you cannot do so with children in mind. You cannot touch children, and you should try to protect education. Thanks for sharing all those details about this important aspect of the, the work your office is doing. And another concerning aspect is the number of children uh, recruited and used by armed groups. That is over 7,000 in 2022. Uh, so what kinds of policies does your office promote to improve protection and reintegration of children that are in this situation? The tool is not just the numbers of violations, it's who the perpetrators were. Because if you don't identify which party to conflict is engaged in which violation, you cannot use the second tool, which is the most effective one, which is the tool of engagement. So what we do is we identify it, not that the purpose of punishment is an identification for the purpose of being able to reach to the right party, whether it's an armed group or a government, and indicate this is happening, do you have the intention to change your behavior or not? So we give a chance to the parties to change their behavior uh, against children. We don't talk about peace, we don't talk about war, we talk about children. So here, our tool is called a joint action plan for the better protection of children. We also have a joint action plan for the prevention of violations against children, which is voluntary. If a party to conflict, whether it's an armed group or a government, decides to sign with us, we provide free technical assistance to that party to better put in place measures that will allow it to not recruit. What type of measures? For example, age screening mechanisms. We're talking of countries uh, that are mostly in the, uh, in the less developed countries and that are afflicted by conflict. So the chances of having an adequate birth registration system are very remote. So by putting age screening mechanisms, we are able every year, every year, not to release, but to stop the recruitment of oh, thousands of children. The other thing we do is um, we've noticed that when our action plans of engaging with the parties of conflict work, they understand they have to release the children that are in their camps or in their forces immediately for reintegration purposes. And twice now it happened to us in Car and in South Sudan, it was so convincing, they signed, it was formal, they implemented, and as a result, in less than, than a week, there were over 6,000 children released between the two countries. And looking to this particular success stories of release of children, there were more than 12,000 cases of yeah. successful releases last year. Uh, what are the, the main lessons learned that can be taken to other situations, like what did work as argument in the negotiation with the armed groups to convince them? What are the takeaways? Well, I think overwhelmingly, governments and armed groups, traditional armed groups, um, they understand children. They believe that they love children. So children is the one item that is a confidence building measure in itself. There's not a single actor I've ever talked to either a, a warlord or a government that has told me I hate my children. So once you identify that everybody is in agreement that children should be better protected, then you educate. 
And what helps a lot, what we offer always, is packages we've created that are modules for training of security forces and government forces, including interministerial committees, for them to understand why there are six grave violations, uh, how they can be prevented, and how can they be identified. However, there is a small proportion of armed groups which are extremely violent, operate across borders, and don't have necessarily territorial objectives in mind. These extremely violent armed groups, sometimes identified as terrorists by the United Nations, will never engage with the United Nations to stop violations against children. Why? Because they cannot exist without children. Their whole premise is to abduct and forcefully recruit and abuse children who then become the center of their fighting force. They cannot do it because they cannot convince anybody to join their cause. So they go out and they milk the land. In Haiti, we're talking of bandits. Those criminal groups also depend on fresh blood and fresh uh, skins to do the work. So they will go and they do attack schools on purpose and then abduct children and forcibly uh, put them into their ranks. So would you expect for next year uh, an increase on the number of abducted and recruited children? We have been noting an exponential increase on abductions for the last five years. I don't expect that to change, that, that trend. Um, I think what is changing is um, for the first time we're seeing perhaps more girls recruited than before. Uh, before, the ratio was 70% of all uh, children forcibly recruited were boys and 30% girls. But we're seeing a change in that. In regions like the Sahel, it's 50-50. So clearly, uh, girls have become m more wanted for recruitment and use purposes. Having said that, you know, 20 years ago, even 10 years ago, even I would say 8 years ago, you will see 12, 13, 14 southern children recruited. And today you're seeing 7,000. It's huge, yes, but it's almost half of what it was. So for me, this is good news, actually. 